Okay, once again, we're on the Epistle of James. I'm ready on the board for you. And this week, obviously you children don't know this, but this is probably one of the most uh, controversial passages in the book of James, or the Epistle of James, because of some things it says in it that people can't seem to understand because it seems to, on, on the surface, just by glancing at it or reading it through without studying it to contradict some things that Paul said. But as we'll see today, it doesn't contradict Paul at all. Can the Word of God contradict itself? If God is perfect, and God is the author of this Bible, the words contained in here, I'm not saying he wrote them, because men wrote them. The men were simply an instrument in God's, in God's hands, like this pen is an instrument in my hands to write this on the board, to write down the very words that he wants to communicate to his people, human beings. So, if that is true, and I believe it is, and it's what the Bible says about itself, the Bible cannot contradict itself. If it does, then God himself, who's supposed to be all-wise and all-knowing, contradicts himself. And then we have a really big problem. But that's not what happened here. So last week we looked at this issue of partiality where some people who were, had money were shown favor, higher favor than people who didn't have money in the church. And we showed that's the mindset of the world. That's the way the world thinks. Well, this person has money, he must be more important. I told you about how I've been involved in church leadership in many different churches throughout the years and how people who are business people have their own, who have their own uh, companies, had lots of money, they're putting big leadership positions without any kind of uh, looking at their spirituality or how, how well they knew God or how holy they were living. It just All that was considered was they're businessmen. They know how to make money. And in that sense, the church sometimes is treated as a business. But a church isn't a business. A church is a ministry. A church isn't about making money, storing up treasures on earth, but moth and rust will destroy. It's about storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And we looked at a little bit of Calvinism and said, how the you in Calvin is, which means, what does you mean in, in TULIP? Unconditional election, that's right. And unconditional election simply says, in, in simple terms, God picks and chooses who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. And, and we learned in James last week that partiality is a sin. It's a transgression of God's law. And we said, well, does God hold himself accountable to the same law he holds us accountable to? And we looked at it and said, yes. And we looked at other verses that says that God is not partial. God, is, uh, God uh, does not judge impartially. So if God chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't, then he's being partial. And that itself, the fact that God is not impartial, defeats the you and tulip of Calvinism. And we also looked at the most, one of the most disputed verses in the last week passage, James 2.10, which says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and stumble in one point, is guilty of all. And we said, well, if someone lies but doesn't commit murder, are they guilty of murder now? Of course not. It's just simply saying they've become a transgressor of the law. They've become a lawbreaker. And what do all lawbreakers deserve according to the Bible? They deserve judgment in hell. So just like a liar deserves hell, a murder, that's all it's saying there. Not saying that because you're a liar you became a murderer. That's not because you're a liar you became an adulterer. You must commit those crimes to become those things. It's just simply saying in James 2.10, that if you've done these things, you become a transgressor of the laws, as verse 11 says. Okay, now today we're starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 2. What is a profit, my brethren, 
if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself that does not have works is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he, became, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Right, verse 14, what is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The word for prophet here, does anyone know what the word prophet means? P-R-O-F-I-T? Anyone? The word prophet here is a Greek word, ophelos. It simply means advantage. What advantage? What help is it to you? And what help does it have to you if you say you have faith but you don't have works? Is it any help? Is it any advantage to you at all? And a prophet, and like, let me just give you a business terms here. And a prophet, you go to Walmart. Walmart, let's just say Walmart buys um, milk from local dairy farmers. They get the milk for, let's just say they get it for a dollar a gallon. Then they sell it for three dollars a gallon. In between this is how much? Two dollars a gallon. That's their profit. So, two dollars was how much they made. So if that was their advantage, their help, in buying it for a dollar and selling it for three dollars. Now, if you have faith, but you don't have works, you make no, you're, not, you're not profiting anything. It'd be like Walmart buying it for a dollar and selling it for a dollar. Does that make any sense? For Walmart to buy a gallon of milk for a dollar and sell it for a dollar? How about they buy it for a dollar and sell it for 50 cents? Does that make any sense? No, it's no profit to them. It doesn't help them at all. And if someone says they have faith, either say it's in Jesus Christ, but they don't have works, it's not going to help them one bit. Not going to help them one bit. In fact, it's going to be worse for them in the end, as we'll see here in a little bit. It'll be worse for them. So that's what the word prophet means, is to help you understand what that word means here. And once again, it just simply means what advantage, what help is it to you if you say you have faith but you don't have works? And it says, can faith save him? Now I want to give you another Greek word this week. We can continue learning a little bit of Greek. The word can here, C-A-N, is the Greek word dunatai. This is how it's spelled. Now my Greek's not as, as nice as it should be, I guess. Okay, that's the Greek word for ken, dunatai. This is, this is the, the uh, D in Greek, okay? This is the U, upsilon, okay? This is the, the nu, which is like our N. This is the alpha, which is like our A. The, 
This is the tau, which is like our T, the alpha, which is like our A, and the ota, which is like our I. Dunatai. Now this Greek word dunatai comes from the Greek word dunamis. Okay? Dunamis. Now think, of, think with me for a second here. Where do you think we get the, what English word do you think we get from the Greek word dunamis? What does it sound like? Dynamite. Dynamite. That's right. And what does dynamite provide when you put down the charge and it blows up? Provides a lot of power, right? So dunamis, which is what we get our English word dynamite from, which basically means power. So let's go back to our text here. This is the Greek word dunatai, which comes from dunamis. Power, can. Is there any power in such faith to save him? If this faith, which has no works, can, is there power in such kind of faith with no works to save a person? No. If someone has faith, but they have no works. There's no power within that faith to save that person. No power at all. It's like blowing up some dynamite and nothing happens. That dynamite's useless. Uh, you might have seen on, on, on TV, they have these sky, sky risers, these skyscrapers that come straight down, right? All this dust and ashes. Imagine if, if you just bought that land, this skyscraper is useless to you, you want to put a new building there, and you keep hitting this dynamite, it won't blow up. Now that land has become useless to you because you can't do what you want to do with it. You can't get this building that's useless to come down because your dynamite has no power. And so it's the same thing with faith. If you have faith, but you have no works, then your faith is useless. Your faith has no power to save you. And then in verse 15 and 16, there's been some confusion, I think, about these verses. Let's just read it through. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Now some might say, well, look, these are the works you should be doing to prove your faith is true. That's not what it's saying here. It's comparing. Listen, if you, if you tell someone who's naked, has no clothes. Can you imagine that? Someone having no clothes on the street. We're not talking about having some clothes. Someone having no clothes. And it's your brother. Your brother in Christ. Has no clothes. Has no food. And you tell them, be warmed and filled. And you give them nothing to clothe them and nothing to feed them. Are your words worth anything to them? They're worthless. When you tell someone, hey, be warmed and filled, and you have a means to help them, but you don't help them, your words become empty, worthless, and vain. They mean nothing to that person. You basically almost like mock that person. So it's not saying here, you, to, in order to prove your faith, you have to go feed people and give them, and give them clothes. It's simply saying, it's comparison here. Just like faith without works is dead and worthless, words without active compassion is worthless. It means nothing to the person you're talking to. And that's why it says in verse 17, Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And let me give you a saying. I think I've given you this saying before. So let me give you a saying here that will help you understand uh, this whole faith and works thing. Uh, we are saved by faith alone. So we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Okay? Now, a while back, you may not remember this, excuse my bad spelling here, 
you may not remember this. We talked about a sermon called Initial Salvation, Final Salvation, and Probation. Remember that sermon a little bit? What we talked about is there's initial salvation, which is when you first become born again. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. Now, what is needed for initial salvation is faith alone. Okay? It's not like you have to do good works for a certain period of time, and then once you've done so many good works, God gives you the Holy Spirit and makes you born again. No. The moment you trust in Christ, and it's a true trust, a repentant trust, an obedient trust, you're willing to forsake your sin and follow Him, that kind of trust, that kind of faith, you, at that point in time, become filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're born again. Okay? But now, you're going to live your faith out. As you're living your faith out, if your faith that you say you just had is not accompanied by works, then guess what? Your faith is worthless. It's useless. It's a dead faith. So, you're saved, you're initially saved by faith alone. When it comes to final salvation, that faith is never alone. If that faith is alone, there is a possibility you might have been initially saved. But you will not be finally saved. When you die and sin before God and say, well, I had faith ten years ago. And God says, what have you done since then? Oh, nothing. You say, I don't think so. You're not going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You hear, depart from me, you work over iniquity. That's what you'll hear. So we have initial salvation and final salvation. Final salvation is when someone perseveres to the end in faith, in a repentant and obedient faith, you persevere to the end. So this, you're saved, initially saved by faith alone, but as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that faith is never alone. You persevere to the end in obedience to God. Okay? And of course, along the way, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But it's never a matter of when you sin, it's a matter of if you sin. Because you never suppose you're going to sin. Okay, so let's get back to the text here. He says, uh, but someone will say, and this is probably a hypothetical, probably mean him saying this. He's saying it in a roundabout kind of way. This is like him saying this. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, so he's showing his faith. That's, that's the way you show your faith. The proof is... Uh, well, I was going to say the proof's in the pudding, but I guess you guys wouldn't know that saying. Um, well, let's just, the proof's in the pudding. You see pudding that's, uh, that's blue. You think, well, that must be blueberry pudding. And then you go to taste it, and it's vanilla pudding. The proof's in tasting it, right? You taste it, and then you realize, well, I guess this blue food coloring was added to it. It's not really blueberry flavored. It's actually vanilla flavored. Therefore, if someone appears to be a Christian on the outside, they even claim to be a Christian, how do you find out they really are a Christian or not? By the way they live their life. Not by what they say, but by what they do, the way they live their life. Okay, so I will show you my faith by my works. And he goes on to give you an example here. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So demons believe in Christ. So demons believe and then you have uh, people who believe. Now, what should be the difference between a demon who believes and a person who believes? Yeah? Yeah, person should obey God and demons don't. So this is an obedient 
an obedient belief. They obey. Demons don't obey. So if we have someone who has, uh, you know, we talk about doctrine a lot in this, uh, in this home fellowship. So we learned a lot about it. Let's just say me and John on the streets run to someone who doesn't believe in original sin. They don't believe in once saved, always saved. They don't believe in Calvinism, which is represented by Tulip here. They don't believe in these things. So they have lots of good beliefs. Are they automatically a Christian? No. He can have all the right beliefs and still not be a Christian. Demons have good doctrine. They know the truth. But knowing the truth isn't going to save anyone. You have to obey God. And that's, that's what he's saying here. Don't you get it? Demons have the right doctrine. I mean, you, you go back to, I'm not going to go to any specific examples here, but you go back to Jesus' encounter with demon-possessed people. How did the demons act towards him? They call him the Son of God. They call him, you know, the, the, you know are you here to cast me into the, the great abyss? They're fearful of him. And, and they, they have a right doctrine about Jesus, about the Trinity, about uh, that they're going to go to hell. They know these things. They have good doctrine. And listen to what it says here in the last part of verse 19. And tremble. You know, if more people would tremble before God, more people would be Christians. Demons have more reverence for God than some professing believers do. They have more reverence. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't fear God at all, you only have the beginning of wisdom in your life. And if you fear God, you'll obey His commands. So some demons, even though they don't obey God, they still tremble before Him more than professing Christians do. Professing Christians treat Him like He's their, he's their buddy. And the Bible does say that, that Christ is our friend. But not in the same sense that, that I can buddy-buddy around with him. He's my Lord, too. He's both of those things. Not one of the, well, not one of the other. So demons believe in that. So, so having the correct doctrine does not save anybody. Having the correct beliefs doesn't save anybody. That's why we can't get too stuck in these things we have to make sure our faith is alive, that we actually know God. And that we, our whole faith doesn't come, become surrounded upon having the right beliefs or the right doctrine. It comes on knowing Jesus and, and living for Him and obeying Him. Not just having the right beliefs. And then it goes on to say, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? The word for foolish here means empty devoid of value, without purpose, stupid. That's one of the words it means. That's what it means. It means stupid. That seems kind of harsh to use that word, but that's what a fool is. And that's what if someone does if they believe that their faith will save them without works. They're foolish. They're stupid. They're empty. They're void of value, without purpose. Because someone who says they have faith but doesn't obey God, are, are they of any worth to God? What does God do with the tree that produces no fruit? He cuts it down and does what with it? It's good for nothing. He cuts it down and throws it into the fire because it's good for nothing but to be used as firewood. That's what it is. I mean, if we had a couple apple trees back here and it was producing fruit, we wouldn't dare cut it down and use it as firewood. We're going to eat the apples off it. But if it stops producing fruit and I can use that land and plant another apple tree in its place, that will produce fruit. I'm going to cut it down throw it into the fire. 
Imagine for something that it could be used for, which is good, is firewood. Give me some warmth for my family. So someone who says they have faith but don't have works, they're foolish, they're stupid, they're worthless, they're without, they're without value, they're void in God's eyes, according to His kingdom. Vain. Yeah, vain. And in verse 21, was not, this is where it gets, gets controversial here, starting in verse 21. People have confusion. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Well, turn with me to Romans 4. So here we have James saying, justified by works. Let's see what Paul says about Abraham. Romans 4 and verse 1. Have to understand our terms here so we can understand the Bible correctly. There's two terms here that are misunderstood that we must understand. Romans 4.1 What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, uh, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Not to him who works, the wages are not, are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now let's get the context here in verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised? Or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And here you see the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, while still uncircumcised. And I'll stop right there. We don't have to go any further. So that the, the point here that Paul's making, he's defining works as circumcision. Outward things you do. You go back to James, he's not defining works as outward things you do. He's defining as a state of the heart and, and, and the way you obey God, which is from the heart, which may result in outward things. And, and let's, we have to get a couple of words down here. Works is one thing. Okay, so we have works. And works can mean uh, outward things, like circumcision. And then it can mean inward things, which is repentance. A change of heart towards God and towards sin. Okay? And what we have here in James' writings and in Paul's writings there are two different versions of the word works being used. In Paul's writings, we just read, we have the outward works being used. Circumcision. And did circumcision save Abraham? Sure didn't. And then we have in James' epistle, inward works being used, or repentance, a life of holiness, a life of obedience. And, and even that doesn't save a person. But that's a condition for someone taking part in salvation. Okay? So, all the repenting in the world, that itself doesn't merit salvation, doesn't earn salvation, doesn't save you itself. The blood of Jesus Christ saves you. In order for that grace to be applied to you, you must have a repentant faith. You must have the inward work of repentance. But like we said before, when it comes to initial salvation, we're not talking about doing works for over a period of time before God justifies you. 
before God initially saves you or gives you His Holy Spirit. And we read in Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works? No, you received it by the hearing of, of, of the Word of God and by trusting and having faith. But that's in Galatians 3. So they have works. That's, those are two definitions for works. And each epistle, Romans and, and James, are using two different definitions. Then we have the, the word for justified. Okay? The word for justified is the Greek word dikaio. I'm not going to write that on the board here, but I'll just put right... Uh, well, justified is what I should put up here. Justified. And it can mean different things as well. So we have the word justified used in both epistles. The epistle of Romans and the epistle of James. Now, it can, this is two different things that, well, it can mean more than two things, but these are two things that it can, be, uh, can mean. It can mean declared righteous as far as positionally. You're positionally righteous. Now, each adult in here, of course, has sinned in the past. So, there's no way we could actually call ourselves righteous in any practical sense because we've sinned in the past. We have sin on our record. But if God forgives us of that sin, our past sin, pardons us of it, like what just said in Romans 4, blesses the man to who God does not account sin, to who God does not hold his sin against him. So if God, once you come to him in the repentant faith, does not hold your sin against you any longer, you're now declared righteous in a positional way. So, over the course of my whole life, I am not actually righteous. I've lived a sinful life in the past. I've done lots of wicked things. Especially before I became a Christian. But God, through our repentant faith in His Son, He forgives me of my past sins. And now, it's almost as if, in God's eyes, because of what He's done, I have never sinned. It's almost as if I had never sinned because He declares me as righteous by trusting in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That forgives me of my past sins. And then we have actual righteousness, which is someone living righteously. Now, I haven't always lived righteously. I'm living righteously now. But I haven't always lived righteously. Let's just go to 1 John so I can clarify this for a little bit more. 1 John chapter 3. And people try to make this an either-or thing. Calvinists will say, well, I'm only declared righteous. And then they'll, they'll come against me and say, well, you're only saying you're actually righteous. Not true. It's both of those things, not either-or. If you don't have both of these things, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If I didn't become declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and just started living righteously, I've sinned in the past. I'm still accountable for those sins. If, I've been if I say I've been declared righteous by having my past sins forgiven, but I'm still living in sin, I'm not actually righteous, I'm still in trouble. So we have 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. This, is, this, verse, this verse is very important. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, actual righteous, is righteous, declared righteous, just as he, Jesus Christ, is righteous. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So through the Son of God, you become declared righteous, or 
Another way of saying that is you've been forgiven of your past sins, and now the whole purpose of Christ coming into your life is to do what according to verse 8? Destroy the works of the devil in your life. That's the whole purpose. Calvinists say, well, the whole purpose for Christ's coming is just to declare you righteous. Not so you can become actually righteous and live a righteous life, but just so God can declare you righteous. No, 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 no. Christ came to destroy the works of the, the literal works of the devil in your life is a sin. That's the whole reason he came. So it's, it's a matter of both of these things here, not either or. So let's go back to Romans 4. Romans 4, what we have is Paul talking about Abraham being declared righteous by God through faith. Okay, and in James' epistle, let's go back to James. It says, Abraham our father was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Now we're going to need, a, we're gonna need a, 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 the line of events here to see how this is working. Let's, let's read on to verse 23 so we can get the line of events here. So he's justified by works. This is, actual, this is actual righteous here. He was declared actually righteous because what? He obeyed God. When, when, he, when, when was this happen? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Because what did God say? He said, I'm going to test you. And when he was about to kill his son Isaac, he said, stop. Now I know that you will do anything I ask of you. Now I know you're actually... From, he, he survived the test. He was tested by God. He submitted to God. He obeyed God. He didn't disobey God. So now God said, yeah, you're actually righteous in my sight right now because, look, you're obeying me. You obeyed this. I tested you, and you obeyed. Okay, now, now to go back to Genesis where this issue actually happened, this happened in Genesis chapter 22, that he was declared at justified or actually righteous before God was in Genesis chapter 22. And then in verse 23 it says this. And this, is, this is the same thing Paul quotes, Romans 4. It says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, in verse 23, that's quoting from Genesis 15. So verse 23 actually happened before verses 21 and 22 happened. So he was declared righteous by belief. He was declared righteous first. This happened first. And then when he, survived, he, he uh, proved himself worthy, God tested him. He showed himself to be actually righteous. Because verses 21 and 22, once again, happened after verse 23 happened in Genesis. Okay? Let's go to Genesis 15, just so I can show you some things real quick. 15. So you can, you can understand by reading these stories what actually happened here. And I think these stories, that, these stories don't support Calvinism at all. Just got to go back to that because Calvinism will say you have no ability to do right until you're born again. You have no ability to obey God until you're born again. Okay? But let's, let's just go back to Genesis 12 for a second. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. It's Genesis 12 now. So we're seeing how these events are going along. So God calls Abram. 
He's just called Abram now, not Abraham yet. And what does Abram do? Does he obey God? Yeah. He, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Okay? And then we have uh, in verse 8, the bottom of verse 8 of Genesis 12. There he, Abram, built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then in verse, uh, chapter, thir chapter 13 in verse 4, and there Abram called the name of the Lord, so he called the name of the Lord again. So he's calling on the name of the Lord. He's obeying God. And if we're going to say that, God, that he wasn't actually justified for the first time until Genesis 15, 6, then according to Calvin, how is he obeying God right here? How is he obeying God all these times? By departing from where he was told to depart from, calling on the name of the Lord, building an altar to him. And then down in verse, thir uh, verse 17 of Genesis 13, it says, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And Abraham did that, and then he built another altar there to the Lord. So we have him building altars to the Lord, obeying God, doing what God tells him to do. But according to Calvinism, you can't do those things unless you're actually already saved. So it's possible that Abraham's already saved at this point because he's obeying God. But then Genesis 15, 6, it says this. Uh, this is the, the issue of him and Isaac. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So he became positionally righteous, and, and later on he, he was shown once again to be actually righteous. So lastly, we talked about uh, becoming... Talked about two different kinds of perfection, right? Last week we had uh, being declared perfect by God. We had absolute perfection. Maybe that was two weeks ago. I can't really remember. Absolute perfection. And then we had uh, maintained perfection. So, being declared perfect by God means, once again, your past has been forgiven. God doesn't hold your passes against you. But absolute perfection, which is, means you have to have absolute knowledge, that's questionable whether that's actually attainable in this life. You have to have absolute knowledge of everything God requires of you to be absolutely perfect. And then there's maintained perfection, which simply says that according to your knowledge, you're being obedient to the knowledge you have. Okay? So as we're tested in life, we're tried in life, we're maintaining perfection by obey we're declared perfect first, they were maintaining perfection by obeying God. Each time we're tested, each time we're tempted, we're obeying God. And that's what happened with Abraham here. Every time he's tested by God, well, not every time, because he, he did fail sometimes, but when, while he's tested by God, he's being declared righteous once again because he's obeying God. He's obeying God. And that's what I think happens with the Christian life. When you first get saved, so we always call it, we call it being saved here, when you first get saved, you trust Christ, you repent of your sins, you're declared perfect. And the question becomes, can someone lose their salvation? Can someone lose their salvation? Yes, we believe he can. We've talked about this many times in this home fellowship. So you're declared perfect when you're saved, you repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and then you have to actually live that life out. You have to live out the Christian life. And so living out the Christian life... Uh, you're tempted. Most times, many times a day, you're tempted to sin. 
You're, you're, you're tried by God, tested by God, to see if you obey Him like, like He tested Abram. He said, go, go, uh, go sacrifice your son on the altar. And did he survive? Did he obey God in that trial, that testing? Did he survive the testing and prove himself to be actually righteous? Yes, he did. So he, he was maintaining the state of righteousness because it's not just being positionally or declared righteous that matters. It's being actual, lived out righteousness. That matters. As we saw in 1 John chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Okay, so... Can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, what I understood was when you uh, got saved, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ just naturally you uh, when your heart was going all that stuff that goes with it. Right. You knew what he stood for. Uh, right. Uh, I was told that, I think it's the same thing as you're saying, I was just want to check on it. Uh, you're led on to good works because of your salvation. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, God, of course, wants you to do good works. He doesn't make you do them. But yeah, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2 for a second, I think this is what you're talking about. We read in verse 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of worthless, anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yeah, so God wants us to walk in good works. And of course, He's going to influence us to do so. But He doesn't make us do so. But because you're saved, you, and you love the Lord, right. you would be willing to do this. Right. And you, you, you would be willing to do it, but at the same time, someone can turn back from those things and stop doing those things. So we have to get this, this down. It's not a, a matter of God forcing you to walk in these things. Or because you've been saved, you have to walk in these things. It's simply because you've trusted in Christ, you want to walk in these things. That's, that, that's, so, but the Calvinists say, well, because you've been saved, you will walk in these things. No, it's not necessarily true. You, you still have a free will. You can still turn back from your salvation. You can still go back to bad works instead of doing good works. But yeah, God, of course, wants you to walk in good works. He wants you to live righteously. And uh, you will, and if you really are a Christian... You will continue to walk righteously and live in it. If you turn back from it, it doesn't necessarily mean you weren't a Christian in the first place. It simply means you've stopped it. You've stopped living righteously. So, yeah, so God wants us to... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Don't the Calvinists then say that that happens if a person turns from the gospel and obeying the gospel and turns from obedience to the Lord, they'll say, well, he's never saved in the first place. Right. And it comes to mind that fellow Chris from uh, University of uh, BCU. BCU, sorry. Right. Who we saw through a progression of time where the Calvinists were constantly con you know, condemning him and saying, right. you were never saved in the first place. He says, well, I guess not. Right. So all the the salvation experience he had, the actually he was preaching at one time. I, I oh, yeah, he was an open-air preacher at Belshire. Open-air preacher at Belshire. Right. He was living out of faith. He probably began to sin. Yet come under conviction and, the, and condemnation and then turn away from the faith. Right. But they say, oh, he was never saved in the first place. Well, how do you know what you're teaching or what you're saying is not bringing him right. stumbling block is leading him to hell? Sure. Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely true. Something I talk about in the, our teaching on perseverance of the saints is that the teaching that if someone turns back to their sin, they were never saved in the first place, actually can lead someone to condemnation.
because they'll start to question whether this experience they had in the, back, in the past was actually real and true. And this young man, how has now become an atheist, doesn't believe in God, that he even exists because, he said, well, if that experience I had in the past, that I think I had, was not really real, then what can be real? Yeah, so you have to, I mean, and it just simply happened that he, he was living righteously, he was living holy, he was a radical Christian, open-air preacher and everything. And when he started having problems of sin in his life, he confessed his sin to his brothers, and instead of restoring him gently, as the Bible says, they condemned him and said, you were never saved in the first place. Which is a really dangerous thing to do. Part of that was, another uh, uh, saying was, uh, you're saved, but you're backslidden. Right. You're just going to lose your, your reward. That's another saying, too. Right, well, I don't necessarily think that's biblical. I mean, if you backslide... No, I don't say it's right. I'm just saying that's another That's thing. what they'll say, yeah. That's what Calvinists will say. They go back and forth. They basically talk out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, they'll say, well, if, if I'm in sin, uh, depending on how much the sin it is and how bad a sin it is, you know, that's what they say, then maybe I just lose my works, or maybe, maybe I really wasn't saved. It all depends on how bad the sin is. And so that they, they just, it doesn't make any sense, biblically speaking. They forget that God says sin is sin. That's right. Sin is sin. So, getting back to the text here, Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac an altar. Okay? And so, this justified by works here doesn't mean he's being declared positionally righteous. He's being declared practically righteous because he's obeying God. He did what God told him to do. And that's why in verse 22 clarifies, it says, Do you not see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. So your faith is being progressed. Every time you obey God, your faith is being made more complete, more perfect before God because you're actually obeying him as, you're, as he's commanding you to do. So he already had faith. And that's what verse 23 says. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. But if someone's going to be declared righteous, they must have a lived out righteousness. And that's why it's, he says, this scripture was fulfilled. He, wasn't, he was accounted for righteousness on that day. But after then, he was the, actually shown that the outworking of being declared righteous is living righteously as well. So it was fulfilled in this, and works, uh, working together with faith, made his faith perfect. John 39, Proverbs uh, says, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father, Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham, you do the works of Abraham, ye would do the works of Abraham. Yeah, that's right. That's John 8.39. Yeah, I almost, I almost was going to talk about it today, but I didn't, get, didn't want to. But yeah, that's great. That's, uh, that's exactly... Jesus is confronting him. So listen, if, you, if Abraham's really your father, then you would, you would do what he did. So what they're saying is, well, it's like, it's like Malachi saying, well, well Kerrigan's my father. And I am his physical, biological father. But if Malachi doesn't follow in the same faith I'm living out, he's not my spiritual child. That's what, that's what Jesus is getting at in John 8, 39. You may be from Abraham's loins, you may be his biological child because way back when you're related to him. But you're not his spiritual child. You're not living the same faith that he's living because you would obey me if you, if you did. And then we go on to verse 24 and it switches from Abraham to someone else. 
You see that man is justified by works and not by faith only. Once again, this justified is, is, is saying shown to be righteous, not declared righteous, shown to be righteous, not by faith only, but by works, because you're, you're declared righteous only by a repentant faith. Okay? You're shown to be righteous, the other definition of justification, you're shown to be righteous by the way you live your life. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, Rahab the harlot, well, could she actually be a harlot at the same time and be righteous? No. Okay, so when it says Rahab the harlot, it's probably just calling her by that name so they can know who, she, who he's talking about. Because Rahab was a harlot at some point in time. She was, and it's basically just a way of saying prostitute. She was a prostitute at some point in time. Rahab was. But it's a contradiction to say she is currently a prostitute and she's currently righteous. It's impossible. And it's not even, you know, and this, this verse is not even justifying or saying that when she lied to the people of her city, the people of Jericho, and said, well, the spies aren't here. That she lied to them? They're not saying that that was righteous. Or the manner in which she did this thing was righteous. It's simply saying that when she... Hid the, hid the spies and sent them out another way, that, that, was, that she was protecting the spies, the children of God, that that itself was righteous. But the way she went about it, actually lying to someone, that itself is not righteous. Lying is never righteous. People often use this to say, well, if someone comes into your house and they say, uh, Nazis. Yeah, oh, yeah, the Nazi, Germany, and you're, hi you're hiding Jews. Do you have Jews in your house? You say no. What's well, a lie? You know, I'm going to find a way not to lie and still hide them. Yeah, to say nothing. I'm not going to lie. I mean, for all I know, maybe it's God's will that that person dies right then. And for me to take it in my own hands and lie and sin about it, that's never appropriate and never right to do. So no matter what the circumstances, I won't lie about it. I will tell the truth. Because a lie is always sinful. Okay, so Rahab, she was justified by works. Now, let's go back to our two definitions of justified here. Is she declared righteous by helping these spies? Or was she shown to be righteous by helping these spies? Shown to be right, that's right. Shown to be right. It wasn't a matter of faith here. It was a matter of works. And works can never declare you righteous. But works can show you to be righteous. So Rahab was shown to be righteous by helping out the messengers or the spies. And then it gives another one more example. It says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now you have someone who's in a grave, they have the tombstone here. You know, R.I.P. is usually what's on there, rest in peace. You have the tombstone. The body's dead. It's in the ground. There's no spirit in it any longer. This person's happy because he's in heaven. Okay? There's no spirit in the man longer. Is this body alive? Can it do anything? Can it walk? Can it talk? No, it's, it's just dead. The, the body itself is physically dead. So as the body in a casket without the spirit is dead, it's useless, it's worthless, it can't do anything for you. It's, no, it's good for nothing but the rot in the ground. So is faith without works. 
So now he's comparing faith, someone who says they have faith but doesn't have works, comparing it to a rotting corpse in the ground. That's what it's like to have faith but not have works. To, have to claim to have declared righteousness but not actually have lived out, shown righteousness. You're like a rotten corpse in the ground. You're like a person who goes to someone who has no clothes and has no food and says, hey, be warm and filled and do nothing for them. That's what you're like. If you say, you, you're, you're like a demon. <laughs> if you say you have faith but have no works. So these are the three things that, I, that James is really declaring here more than anything. He's comparing someone who says they have declared righteousness before God, just as Abraham had, because Abraham had declared righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. But they're saying, but they don't actually have lived out righteousness, they're actually living righteously, which Abraham did in Genesis 22, and showed that he was actually righteous. These are the three things you're like. Okay? You're like a demon. Okay? You're like uh, someone who makes no profit. And you're like a rotting corpse. And then the, oh, the fourth one is... Yeah, it's kind of sloppy here. Rotting... Let me erase that. Like a rotting corpse. It's actually four things, I guess, huh? And you're like someone who sees someone naked and has no food and does nothing for them. That's what you're like. So an uncompassionate person. So these are the four things he compares someone to who says they have declared righteousness, being justified by faith, but they don't have lived out righteousness, actually living it out and living a holy life. You're like a demon who believes, has good doctrine. They believe, but have no works. You're like someone who makes no profit. You're like Walmart buying something for a dollar and selling 50 cents or selling it for a dollar. That's pretty dumb. You're not going to make any money that way. Walmart's going to close down. They're going to go bankrupt. You're like a rotten corpse in the ground. As the body without a spirit is dead, so is faith without works dead. You're like an uncompassionate person. Someone who sees someone naked, has no food. You have the ability to give them food and clothing. It's like you have the ability to do works and you do nothing for them. Those are the four things a person is like who has, says they have faith, says they have declared rights, as Abraham did in Genesis 15, but they don't have lived out rights like, like Abraham did in Genesis 22. And like we said, if you're a child of Abraham, you'll do the works he did. All right. A lot more explanation this week than usual. A little deeper than usual, but hopefully the children can understand it. All right. Do you have this tape? Yeah, it's going to... Get on tape. I'd like to get some of your stuff. Okay. Sure. It may take me a while to get it to you. But yeah. Definitely. Is it on CD or is it... Um, I can put it... I'm, I'm going to eventually have the audio files ready so you can listen to it on a CD and like a, like a radio type CD player. Yeah. And I'm going to have, they'll be on, in, in video online, but you don't have the computer, right? Yeah, so you won't be able to, but yeah, I, I can get the audio, the CD files yeah, to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, once I'm done with the whole series of James, I'm going to start doing that. I'll, I'll get the audio files ready. And Just that one question on it, I'm, I'm compassionate. Mm -hmm. That can not only work 
support somebody that's naked and so on that you don't help out. But that could work with your children too, couldn't it? If you have no compassion for their, their growing, you have to allow them to grow some and, and understand it. And of course, they have discipline along with right. it. Uh, would that be the same thing? Uh, I, I think any kind of sin is really the same thing. I mean, any kind of sin. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole point he's making there though is is to say you have faith but have you have no works. The same thing as saying, oh, be warned and failed, you naked and destitute person. But it's just empty words. It'd be like telling your children, I love you, but not giving any time, not disciplining them, not raising them in the fear of the Lord. You don't really love them. Not feeding them. Right. Yeah, it's just it's just. Really what he's getting at here is hypocrisy. This whole thing, he's getting at hypocrisy. Someone who says to be a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian. That's what the whole, the whole point of this. He just gives four... Yeah, he just gives four examples here that I think are really strong. Especially this demon one that's really strong. And this rotting corpse is really strong. I mean, even this is really strong. Because what, you know, what, uh, what did the Bible say about someone who doesn't take care of their own family? They're worse than an unbeliever. Yeah, and, and this is in your family. It's not just your immediate family; it's your brothers and sisters in Christ too. And it says, if your brother is naked and destitute of food, it's just—I could imagine someone doing that. If I had the means to help someone, I would do it. If he, uh, if he said that uh, to love your enemy and you didn't love your own children, or your, your You're worse. Right. The Bible says that even the unbelievers do those things. They love their family members and friends. That's what it says right in that passage. And Jesus, yeah, when Jesus said, you know, if you don't love your enemies, you just love your friends and family. Even the unbelievers do that. Yeah.